Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today, we're going to be rebroadcasting a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. Today's topic focuses on two aspects from this week's Torah portion, Parshat Shmini, religious ecstasy, and the laws of Kashrut. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. So, I want to discuss two things in this week's Parsha, Parshat Shmini. It is the, I believe, the third Parsha in the book of Leviticus. And there are two aspects of this week's Parsha that I wanted to discuss with you. One is a very difficult to understand incident which takes place on one, what would otherwise have been the, probably the happiest moment in the wilderness for the Jewish people. I want to welcome my bro, who just popped on. Hey, Michael. And um, here you have three or four parshiot, three or four Torah portions devoted to getting us ready for the tabernacle. The tabernacle with all of its detail and specification, what the high priest, the Kohen Gadol would wear, every little detail. I mean, it's like an architecture's dream and uh, other people's nightmare, if you will. Just a lot of specifics. Um, Hey, Rabbi Eli Buchler, welcome. Pleasure to have you joining us. Uh, a good Nair of Shabbos. So you have all of these specifics leading up to the inauguration for the tabernacle. And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And we finally get to the moment and to the point where the tabernacle will actually be used. Until this point, all we are told about is, is the specifications for building the tabernacle and what materials were needed and who would carry what and like every little detail. And finally, we're getting to this moment of glory where the Jewish people are going to come in, cut the ribbon and start to use it. Welcome, welcome Eddie Zarabi. And in the middle of this joy, I'm going to read you the verses. A terrible thing takes place. Um Wait one second. Okay, everything is going on. Uh, this is a, um, in the, if you have the handout there, you can, you can look to the third reading. Um, actually, between, yeah, to the very beginning of the third reading. And it says, Aaron. Aaron, of course, is the high priest. That's Moses' brother. And Aaron's whole family is involved in this because they are the next generation of priests. And it says in the, in the Torah, we're on chapter 10 now, the very, very, we're going to begin with chapter 10, uh, verse 1. And the sons of Aaron, whose names were Nadav and Avihu, they each take their own fire pan, and they put fire in it, they light a fire, and they begin to put incense, they start to burn incense on the day of the dedication, the inauguration, the cutting of the ribbon, if you will, of the tabernacle. And they bring this offering before God. Eish zara asher lo tziva otam. In Eish zara, what's an Eish zara? Eish zara is a foreign fire. A fire that the Torah then continues to say, which was not commanded for them to bring. You know that the tabernacle and everything that happens in the tabernacle is carefully commanded, specified, and choreographed. Nothing happens spontaneously. 
and Aaron's two sons come in. They bring this uh, offering. It's an incense offering that was never commanded. The Torah refers to it as an Eshazar, as a fire, as a foreign offering. And a fire goes out from God, and it consumes them. It literally strikes Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu, down on the spot, and they die before God. Before God, meaning right there in the Mikdash, in the sanctuary. And then in verse 3, Moses says to Aaron, that when God said, I will be sanctified through those whom I have chosen, and I will be glorified before all of the people, this event is what he was talking about. And Aaron was silent. It's a very, very sad event. Aaron is quiet. And Rashi tells us, and we're going to try to figure out what the sin was, what did they do that was so wrong that warranted their, their death. Hey Maya, welcome Maya. I'm just reading Rashi's interpretation. Achai, um, Moshe says to his brother, Aaron, my brother, according to Rashi, Moshe is telling his brother that your sons were even greater than us. It's a very, very strange and bizarre kind of thing to say after they were stricken down. Apparently they did something wrong. Vayidam Aaron, and it says that they were silent. I want to welcome my friend, Rabbi Shaul Robinson, Rabbi of Lincoln Square, who's been such an extraordinary pillar for the entire community during this very, very challenging time. Just a shout out to my friend, Rabbi Robinson, who is with us and joining us to learn a little Torah. Vayidam Aaron, and Aaron is silent. Kibel schar ashtikato. Rashi says that Aaron received reward for his silence. You know, sometimes silence can be an awful thing. We're commemorating Yom HaShoah in the coming week. We're having a whole program on Monday night, please God. And... Um, Keeping quiet, as unfortunately a lot of good people did um, when the Nazis uh, reigned terror in the world, uh, caused millions of Jewish lives. We know that being silent sometimes in the face of injustice can be considered the greatest crime. But sometimes being silent when something tragic happens is considered meritorious. And Rashi is telling us that when Aaron was silent, in the face of the death of his two sons, who came to bring this, this, um, this offering that was not commanded to be brought, that was considered meritorious. And I shared this morning, you'll hear in my video, uh, that a lot of the silence that you're hearing now, unfortunately, with the passing of a lot of older people, is considered a sort of um, dignified acceptance of God's decree in the face of terrible tragedy. And that is considered really meritorious, as I say. But it doesn't answer the question, what was so bad about what Nadav and Avihu did? So there are a couple of interpretations. The first simple, simple interpretation is what you see in the text itself. The Torah says that they were never commanded to do this. Okay, so you're not commanded to do something, 
but you're killed for doing something that was it, presumably a positive thing. They came into the sanctuary and they offered a korban, they offered an offering, was incense burning to God. Okay, they weren't commanded to do so. Some of the commentaries explain, Rashi actually brings down two reasons as to why they were killed. Rabbi Eliezer, Aaron, Moshe Rabban. They were more halacha Rebbe, which means that if you um, are a student and you render a halachic decision in the presence of your teacher, it's a very, very serious uh, offense in Judaism. It's considered the height of disrespect to give an answer to a question in the presence of your Rebbe. And here you have a situation, Aaron's two sons, their Rebbe was Moshe, Moshe was their teacher. Moshe's sitting there. Moshe never gave them a command to bring this offering. God never commanded Moshe to tell them to do this. They went ahead and just did it on their own. It's as if they were more halacha lifnei rabbo, Rashi says. It's as if they were rendering a halachic decision in the presence of Moses, their teacher. And that is one interpretation that for the spiritually high level that these two people are, and you're going to hear some of the other interpretations I will share, almost all the rabbis believe that these, that these two individuals are on a very, very high spiritual level. They weren't just, you know, being uh, crazy. Right? They were trying to do something spiritual, but simply wanting to do something spiritual isn't always enough. You need to follow the guidelines so that you're not violating any other principles, important principles of Judaism, one of which is not to be more halacha lifnei rebbe. And that's a very, very important principle in Judaism that we have a hierarchy and we don't impetuously render decisions or come up with new sacrifices or make up new things when we so, when we are just feeling like we would like to do that. Uh, can anyone else think of a similar sin that was committed by the, the entirety of the people, at least the uh, a, a significant minority, I should say, of the Jewish people. And that was the sin of the golden calf. If you look at all of the verses in the Torah that speak about the sin of the golden calf, it doesn't appear that the Jews who, who, who fashioned this calf believed that the calf actually was a god. If you look at the actual psukim, the actual text of the verses, it seems that they were freaking out that Moses left them and he didn't come back when they thought he was supposed to have come back, they miscalculated. And they said, how are we supposed to exist without Moses? And they built this calf, not as a God, but as an intermediary to God himself, because that's the way they were kind of using Moshe as an intermediary. And they were thinking he wasn't gonna come back, so they created something new. So then you ask yourself, well, then what's so bad? <laughs> if they didn't create a God, and it wasn't really worshiping an idol, Right? They still believed in the one and only God. They just needed an intermediary. Moshe was gone, so they'll fashion something on their own. And what was so bad? So the Beis Levi, one of the great, more contemporary, if you will, uh, commentators, not contemporary, but uh, more of recent, um, suggests that it was not the sin of creating a new God. It's not a Vodazara, idol worship per se, but it's the sin of creating a new religion, a new path to God. And that's actually a very, very relevant issue. Because many people today, many of us today, really, we believe in God. Um, and we want to relate to God. But we often don't always find the laws of the Torah satisfactory. We want to make up our own laws. 
We want to develop our own path to Hashem. So we'll come in and we'll burn an incense offering. We'll create some kind of new ritual that will make us feel more connected. And that, according to the Beit HaLevi, was also a serious offense because we not only subscribe as Jews to a belief in a one and only, a God that we can't experience with any of the senses, but we subscribe to a system that we believe comes from God himself. And it is considered the height of arrogance. It's considered presumptuous for us to be able to create our own sister because the createe, namely us, we, do not believe that we have such a handle on who we are existentially, metaphysically, spiritually, that we can know exactly what's really connecting us with God and what's really not connecting us with God. So Nadav and Avihu had this moment of, if you will, religious ecstasy. They wanted to feel something more, so they just created something new. And this is a very relevant issue because, you know, I've been to rock concerts. I remember years ago, Jill and I, my wife and I, went to see the Allman Brothers. They were playing at the Beacon here on the Upper West Side. And um, I remember it was really, for some, I think, in the audience, this wasn't just a rock concert. I mean, I went because I'm a huge fan of the drummer and one of the guitarists, and I love the Allman Brothers. But when they were playing a certain like guitar rift for like 15, 20 minutes, and those, those psychedelic images were being you know, shown on the screen, and there was a lot of mushrooms and other you know, stuff going around the audience, People were trying to have a religious experience. And you have to ask yourself, when is it a religious experience? Or when is it just a rock concert with some drugs? Because you can claim that you're having this spiritual connection like anyone else is when they go to synagogue and pray on Shabbat or they're studying Torah. We're having it right now as we're learning. What creates an authentic religious experience? And we believe in Judaism that the only way we can ever know if we're having an authentic religious experience, we cannot simply rely on our own emotions and our own feelings. Because we are the createe, we don't know ourselves or God well enough to know when we're truly connecting or not. We need to know that the system we're following ultimately comes from a higher place and it's not something we just created on our own. Because if we create it on our own, maybe it's hit or miss. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But it's presumptuous. It's, it's, it's an expression almost of arrogance that we understand ourselves so well. We understand the workings of the neshama, of the human soul, and we understand God. We know how the two can be connected. We have the Torah and the mitzvot to enable our souls to be connected with Hashem. And that's perhaps one way of understanding where Nadav and Avihu went wrong, even though they were spiritually motivated. Now, there is another um, interpretation that is also, I think, does justice to the text. Because immediately after this, um, Moshe gets a whole musr shmuz, if you will. He gets a whole um, instruction from God um, in a couple of verses later. If you look at verse 8, Vayidabar Hashem el Aaron lemor, it's not Moshe, excuse me, Aaron is told by God, Yain v'shechar al wine and shechar is uh, other kind of intoxicating drinks. One should not drink. When you go into the tent 
the, in the Alma way to the tent of meeting, so you should not die. And the rabbis teach that the juxtaposition of this instruction to Aaron, that one should not enter the mikdash, the sanctuary, in a inebriated state, is teaching us where Nadav and Avihu went wrong. They entered the mikdash in an inebriated state. Now that's also a very, very important uh, teaching and lesson here. Because why would Nadav and Avihu walk in drunk? That doesn't really jive with who they were, with our understanding of these two great leaders, the sons of Aaron. They were holy, holy people. And it seems as though, perhaps, and I'm just suggesting, that just like we, we drink also at the Seder, we drank four cups of wine, and we do it to alter our state. And in Judaism, we're not an ascetic religion. We believe that we are supposed to enjoy the physical aspects of, uh, of the world and channel them and use them in our divine service, in our connection, our relationship with Hashem. And perhaps they were drinking a little to be able to get themselves to feel a little more connected, like we do in any Shabbat meal. This is just a suggestion that I wanted to uh, offer. I want to share another idea that was uh, shared by the late and great Lubavitch Rebbe. And he asks, why did Nadav and Avihu enter the sanctuary while intoxicated? And Hasidic thought explains that while they did actually drink wine, their desire was not for the physical sensation of the wine, but rather they wanted to achieve a heightened spiritual awareness. It's one of the reasons why we drink wine at festive occasions, not to get smashed. It's to get ourselves a little out of ourselves so we can connect with the spirituality of the moment. And Nadav and Avihu, says the Rebbe, were indeed holy people, as Moshe declared after their passing. Now I see that they were greater than me and you. I mentioned that in Rashi, that Moshe tells his brother Aaron, your sons, the ones who were just killed, they're greater than you and I. So not only did they enter the sanctuary to be close to God, they did so under the influence of alcohol so that they could be helped to come even closer by their heightened sense of spiritual sensitivity, which we know that wine can do. One of the reasons we drink wine at the Seder, some of the rabbis teach, is so that the wine, so that we can feel like we were kings. We are kings on this night. That's why we lean when we drink. And it's a symbol of freedom. And it helps alter our state. We know that wine does it. It's a very fine line. And that's one of the teachings I want to share with you. The Rebbe continues to say, but their desire for spirituality was unbalanced. So if what they did was so wonderful and they drank only to get closer and they brought an incense offering only to get closer. Okay, so we shared one idea. They brought something that God did not command them to bring and we can't simply create our own religion. We, talk, we talked about that approach. But in terms of the inebriation, their desire for spirituality, says the Rebbe, was unbalanced. Nadav and Avihu simply expired because they came so close to God they no longer wanted a bodily existence. And while indeed it is appropriate and admirable, says the Rebbe, for a Jew to have an intense yearning for God, like that of Nadav and Avihu, one must be able to refocus spiritual inspiration back into everyday life. That is the uniqueness of Judaism. Judaism is not an ascetic religion. The goal is not to leave the body, is not to transcend the physical and negate the physical and just enter the completely the world of spirituality. 
The idea is to access spirituality through physicality and to lead a, set, a, a balanced kind of life. And Nadav and Avihu were not doing that. And here's another indication. Some of the other rabbis teach that the reason Nadav and Avihu were taken is because they were not married. And that's kind of like a strange thing to have a great sort of rabbinic leader like the sons of Aaron not married. But it's another indication that they were trying to really achieve a, um, a sort of transcendental kind of existence. And that is not the goal in Judaism. The goal in Judaism is to be married, is to have children, is to live in the physical world, to inhabit the physical world, to use physicality to access spirituality, not to, to negate spiritual, not to negate physicality. And, and, and by trying to drink to get out of themselves and by not being married again, not, not, not living that sort of mundane physical life, they were going beyond what the model of Judaism is supposed to be. I was learning this with my son, Yosef, who uh, again, I want to thank for his meditation this morning. And we saw something very, very powerful in the writings of the Tanya. The Tanya was the writings of the first Lubavitch Rebbe. And he said something very, very powerful. He said that a flame, if you ever look at a flame, the flame is always flickering up, right? Even if you take a flame and you hold it the other way, like when you, when you um, are trying to extinguish your Havdalah candle on Saturday night, you, 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 you want to douse it, you pull it down, you see the flame just keeps going up. And the, the Alter Rebbe who wrote the Tanya said something very, very powerful. He says, why is the flame doing this? Doesn't the flame realize that the more the flame tries to get away from its wick, from the actual source of its light, because it wants to elevate itself, it wants to go up, it will extinguish itself, it will literally kill itself. But the flame wants to do that. The flame wants to leave the physical and enter the realm of the spiritual. And it's almost kind of like what Nadav and Avihu were doing. They were leaving, they were trying to get out of the physical. And in a sense, they took their own lives, even though the text itself, the Torah says that God sent this fire. But it was almost the natural um, result of what they were trying to do by leaving the physical world, by leaving their bodies, by trying to enter too much the spiritual realm. And one of my rabbeim, Rabina always used to say, and you should continue to live and be well, that our goal in life is to lead a normal Jewish life. A normal Jewish life means you don't leave the physical world. You don't become obsessed by physicality, and that's the whole Parsha of the Nazir, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. Sometimes we're too uh, obsessed with physicality. It's too much physicality, but we are supposed to have a proper balance between being our feet grounded in the physical world with our head going up into the spiritual realms, but not allowing our feet to leave the ground. What Nadav and Avihu were trying to do was to take their entire persona and literally throw it up into the heavens and leave the physical world and be all spiritual. And that's not our mission. We will have time to do that. Um, after 120, when the rabbis teach that we are Nena Meziva Shrina, that we bask in the radiance of, the, of, of God's spiritual presence and we, we become disembodied. The soul just moves on and there's no more physicality, there's no more body. Or during the Yomot Mashiach, during the Messianic realm, 
that will be the resurrection of the dead, where we're put back into the bodies because we've been disembodied and all we have is a soul. But for whatever reason, God wants us also to be a body. God wants us to treat the body, I don't want to say like a temple, that's not really a Jewish concept, but we, I mean, maybe it is a Jewish concept. The Torah says, We're supposed to guard ourselves. And we know that how many mitzvot, public mitzvot, we can't do now during this corona period of time because the body takes precedence, in a sense, over the spirituality. The way you treat your physical body is important. We're not supposed to negate the physical body and try to just transcend it and move into some other realm. God wants us to observe his Torah in the physical realm. And if you look at all the mitzvot, they're all designed to be observed physically, to access the spiritual, but as physical beings. And that is one thing I wanted to share with you about the passing of Nadav and Avihu and what we can learn for our own selves. It's not to become obsessed with physicality and materialism. That's why we have this other episode in the Torah of the Nazir, who feels that he or she has become too obsessed with materialism, with physicality. We need uh, uh, th that Nazir personality. That person needs to steep themselves more in spirituality. But in general, we try to live a balanced life between physical and spiritual. And you'll ask how? That's the mitzvah. The 613 mitzvot are all ways we say things with our mouth when we pray. We eat things. We don't eat certain things. We don't say things. We literally are using our lips, uh, the organs of the mouth. We're using our feet to run to do a mitzvah. We're using our, our, our hands. We put on the tefillin. Everything that we do in, in terms of the mitzvah, yeah, we have certain other mitzvot a little more cerebral, like we're studying right now, right? But a lot of the other mitzvot really involve all the different parts of the human body because the, the body is supposed to be not negated, but channeled towards the physical. But the body is supposed to remain, at least for the here and for the now. And as long as we are blessed to have our bodies, we have to treat those bodies like temples, and we have to um, observe all of the rules and the laws of the Torah, which sometimes requires to negate a spiritual law in order to preserve the physical body. And that, I think, is something we can learn from the passing of Nadav and Avihu, that kind of balance. Okay, um, by the way, I'll mention one thing, and then we'll go into uh, the laws of Kashrut, um, because they were also mentioned this week's Parsha. We do have one personality that does defy all of this, and that's Moses. We know that Moses goes up for 40 days and 40 nights. We don't know what he's eating up there. We don't know how his clothing stays intact. He is kind of going beyond the, you know, and then he comes back and he divorces his wife. He doesn't stay married with Sipora, uh, but he's not the model. Moshe's really not the model. Um, and the Torah in this week's Parsha, I think, is trying to teach us about what the model is. Uh, Shabbat Shalom, Gail. Welcome, Nathaniel Berman. Uh, all of the other people that have come on, Michal um, and Liesel is here, and Kaylee and Bonnie and Grace, my friend Daniel Krauss, Devorah Heller, Marissa Espat, uh, Rabbi Robinson, everyone else that has been on listening to us. I know this sounds like a romper room when I mention everyone's name. I, I, I prefer a Peloton moment. Stay with me, you can do this. I want us to spend a few moments on one other aspect in this week's Parsha, and that is the signs of a kosher animal. Um, 
what are the signs of a kosher animal? It's mentioned in Parshat Shmini that we should stay away from certain animals and we should, uh, and we are permitted to eat other animals. And I actually have a picture here, not on the handout that you have, but now we are in chapter uh, 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 9. It says that these are all the creatures that you may eat. Um, actually, go back a little earlier, the laws of forbidden animals, it's in the sixth reading in Shishi. Um, chapter, chapter, chapter 11. Chapter 11, God tells Moshe to tell Aaron, you shall speak to all of the children of Israel, and these are the living creatures from which you may eat. And what do we, what do we say? Uh, any animal which has a split hoof, which is completely split into two hooves, and it chews its cut. You need both of those characteristics. An animal that chews its cut and has split hooves, actually has a picture here. This is the Chabad. I know I, went very, I became very Chabad today in this discussion. Um, a little picture here of split hooves. Uh, this, this picture over here is of a split calf of an animal which is kosher, of a cow's foot. It shows, it shows how it's completely split. And here you have um, a horse's foot. We know that horse is not uh, kosher. You've all seen a horse's hoof or foot. It's completely joined and therefore not kosher. And then of course the Torah goes through the four animals that have one of those two signs, has a split hoof, but doesn't chew its cud, or doesn't, or, or, um, or chews its cud, but doesn't have a split hoof. And of course, like the pig and the camel, those are animals which are also equally not as kosher, even though they have one sign, but not the other. You need to have both of those two signs. The question I wanna have in the last few remaining minutes that we have before uh, we end today, is what is the significance of split hooves and chewing the cud? Is there any significance to those characteristics? So, um, and by the way, the next chapter then deals with the laws of fish, which have uh, skins, uh, excuse me, scales and fins. So if you look at the writings of, of the great Jewish philosopher Maimonides, the Rambam, when he talked about kosher food, and he addresses this in a couple of sections, in, but I'm quoting here from the Mornavuchim, the Guide to Perplex. So the, the, the Rambam there writes that kosher food is healthier. Um, and and he, he, he believes, and this is part of his, his, his whole um, thesis in Judaism, that everything that the Torah forbids us from doing or commands us to do is to give us a wholesome kind of both spiritual and physical existence. And he assigns a very sort of medicinal approach to keeping kosher and believes that the laws of kashrut will help you live a more physically balanced kind of life, touching on what we discussed before. Um, and he places the laws of kashrut in what he calls Hilchot Isurebiya in his Mishnah Torah, where he codifies all of Jewish law. He places the laws of kashrut in the same section as the laws of sexual uh, morality, Hilchot Isuri Bia, and he puts Hilchot, Hilchot Malchalot Asurot, the laws of forbidden foods, and he puts those two, um, he puts those two sections of Jewish law into a book he calls Sefer Hakadusha, the Book of Holiness. That's within his Mishnah Torah, his codification of Jewish law. Now, why does he put the laws of keeping kosher and sexual mores in a book he calls Holiness? 
Well, technically, it's because of all, if you see the, the, in the Parsha, you will see that whenever the Torah refers to the laws of sexual conduct or the laws of keeping kosher, it always talks about Kedusha, holiness. Be holy like I am holy. God keeps saying that just like I am holy, you shall be holy. And this is an idea of holiness that is connected to the laws of sexual conduct and keeping kosher. Um, and it has to do with prishut. It has to do with the ability of transcending the physical world, not completely, as we spoke about before, but controlling certain physical urges so we can channel them. And that I would term a little more of a disciplinary approach, that we keep kosher, according to Maimonides, not because this animal is any less holy or more holy. He doesn't really get into the animals, the splitting of the hooves and the chewing of the cud and why a lion and, and as opposed to a cow. He doesn't get into those particulars. It's more about having a discipline and staying away from certain things, being okay with other things, but staying away from other things. And, that, and that's more of a disciplinary approach I would attribute to the great Maimonides when it comes to keeping kosher. And it's not rooted philosophically in the distinction between the different animals per se. However, the Ramban, who's a contemporary of the Ramban, the Nachmanis, who was more of a Kabbalist in his outlook, he believed, and there were others who spoke about this, that there's something about animals that chew their cud and have split hooves that is permissible to consume as opposed to animals that don't. And he says something very, very interesting, and you can do a little more reading on this. I saw this in the writings of Diane Grunfeld, who was a great um, Jewish philosopher, student of Rav Hirsch, because Rav Hirsch quoted the Ramban on this. And he wrote in his first volume of the Jewish Dietary Laws that all the animals that the Torah permits us to eat are herbivores. They're animals that don't prey on other animals. And if you look at all the, 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 the uh, excuse me, the animals that the Torah forbids us from eating, they're carnivorous in nature. They prey on other animals. And that's interesting. Nachmanides says, drawing from the Kabbalistic tradition, and I would call this, you are what you eat, that somehow the carnivorous and cruel tendencies of those prey or hunting type of animals can somehow be internalized into who we are via the eating process. Sounds a little mystical, although if you speak to some nutritionists, they're attributing lots and lots of um, not only disease, but behavior today to the diet, to what we consume in our, in our everyday lives. And there is this belief in the Kabbalistic tradition that the kind of life that the animal itself lived can somehow be internalized by the person consuming the animal. We do have this idea in the text as well. We know that as um, Jews, we're not permitted to eat blood, right? We drain the blood of an animal before consuming it. And the Torah says it straight out, ki dam ha-nefeshu, because the dam, the blood of an animal, has the nefesh. We believe, and the Kabbalists teach us as well, and there's the book of Sefer Atanya discusses this at length, that animals have a soul, not the same soul as a human being. They don't have a nefesh elokit, but they have a nefesh behemit. They have an animal soul, which animates, literally animates the animal, and it's somehow connected to the blood, and therefore we, as Jews, are not permitted to consume the blood of an animal. 
because somehow we can be affected by what we eat. So there is this idea that animals that have split hooves and chew their cud and are carnivorous, therefore, by nature, we should not consume their meat because somehow their more cruel tendencies and lifestyle can be internalized by the person eating um, those animals. And therefore, we can only eat animals that don't prey on other animals and lead more tamer lifestyle. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you take this philosophy to the extreme, you'll end up being a vegetarian. And I think there actually is a lot of support in Jewish literature for a vegetarian lifestyle, according to Jewish philosophy. Uh, technically, there really is no a command per se to eat meat. There were, of course, the Paschal offering, there was a mitzvah to eat uh, of the Paschal offering, but that might, you know, you could still be a vegetarian all year round and, and break the rule for that, for that time because the Torah commands you to do that. We also have the idea of eating meat and drinking wine on the holidays and on Shabbat. There are ways of dealing with that if a person is a vegetarian. But this would seem, just want to see who else has joined on here. Hey, welcome Jody Teicher and everyone else. That just came on. Shabbat Shalom to you, Gail. Um, there is a basis, therefore, philosophically, for um, being a vegetarian because there's no technical command to eat meat. If you look at the history of when God permitted man to eat meat, first it was with sacrifices and then only certain animals and only with a shrita and so on and so forth. It looks like God's allowing us, not requiring. In fact, the first toast vote. Uh, one of the great commentators on the Talmud in the Tractate of Chulin asks, should a shochet, a Jewish butcher, before slaughtering the animal, recite a blessing? Presumably, if it's a mitzvah, you'd make a bracha. Always make a birchos, a mitzvah, a blessing before you perform a mitzvah. But it's not clear that it's a mitzvah. It might be that if you want to eat meat, this is the way you have to do it. Just like if you, there's a mitzvah to pay your employees on time. That doesn't mean I have to go out and start a business so I can fulfill the mitzvah to pay my employees on time. No, it means that if I have a company and it's my company and I have people working for me, I need to make sure they get paid on time. Same thing, you wanna eat meat, God says it's okay under these circumstances. And that's the kind of mitzvah it is. It's not like thou shalt eat meat per se. I remember when my, uh, um, one of my sons was about eight or nine years old he was watching a cartoon and he figured out where meat actually came from and he refused to eat any meat and all of his rebellion were at, up in arms about um, this eight-year-old boy in yeshiva, um, uh, you know, uh, becoming a vegetarian. And I remember getting into a whole discussion with one of the rabbis and I said, listen, assuming that he can get his nutrients from other foods, why would that be a bad thing? for him to become a vegetarian. The only issue I think of being a vegetarian is if you decide not to eat meat because you think it's immoral to take uh, meat from an animal. And I understand given modern day sensibilities why many of us would, be, would, would, would think that, but if the Torah permits, if God allows us to eat meat, that doesn't mean we have to, but if he allows us to eat meat for us to consider such an activity immoral, would be rendering something God permits as moral, which obviously poses uh, uh, you know, serious philosophical issues. But I think that's just something to share as we go into this Shabbat um, on the laws of Kashrut that 
Um, and we're learning more and more of this as we get more sophisticated in our understanding of the relationship between our diet and our personalities. And it's not just um, what we eat that affects um, our health, of course, we know that. But it also affects the way we think of ourselves and it also affects um, how we can somehow, how we develop. And what these great Kabbalists are teaching is that metaphysically somehow we're different. Now it doesn't say this straight in the, ta- in the Talmud. The Talmud says that non-kosher meat is metamtem et alev. It somehow blunts, um, uh, makes the, uh, it makes the heart callous, if you will. The question is, how is it doing that? And this is one theory. You could say, according to Maimonides, it's by not being disciplined, and it, it, it's by allowing us to eat anything and everything, and Maimonides wants us to live disciplined lives because that's the healthy, balanced life that the Torah wants us to live. Or you can get a little more mystical and Kabbalistic, like Nachmanides teaches, and that what we eat actually affects our personalities. And getting back to the original part of our class and discussion today about living that kind of balanced life, of being concerned and careful with what we put into our mouths because we care about our bodies. And being religious doesn't mean you negate the body. Being religious does mean we put more emphasis on spiritual matters and we don't you know, just obsess over materialism, over things and over, you know, getting more and more toys and physicality and pleasure. And we probably err in our society a little more on that. We probably struggle more with that and bringing more spirituality. But there are those of us who just want to, like the flame wants to leave the wick and extinguish itself and just lose itself in an all spiritual existence. God And I can't tell you exactly why that is 100%, but for whatever reason, God has made it abundantly clear in the Torah, and our sages teach this, that we're supposed to live a balanced life and to think back to these great, holy, and spiritual beings, Nadav and Avihu, and what we can learn from their death, from their passing, what we can learn from Aaron's dignified response to their passing, by Yudom Aaron, and Aaron was silent, And of all the dignity, I'm mentioning this in my video that I'm putting out this afternoon, the dignity, I'm so blown away by the uh, respect, the thoughtfulness of people who are posting uh, about their loved ones, their parents and grandparents who have passed away, unfortunately, from corona. I'm just so impressed with the way people are handling. It seems so... That there's a dignified kind of silence, a kind of accepting of God's decree. And I can't even imagine the pain, the absolute pain. I just paid a shiva call to a dear friend of mine, a supporter for many, many years of MGE, who lost his beloved father, my good friend Sinclair Haberman. And I want to wish Sinclair and his entire family an achama consolation. Um, uh, also, uh, Mindy Lamb. Uh, my teacher and my mentor, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamy Bedel Chaim's wife, Mindy Lam, who was an extraordinary leader in our community on the Upper West Side for many, many years. She was the Rebetzin of the Jewish Center for many years, and I had a, a close personal relationship uh, with uh, Mrs. Mindy Lam, who was just such a role model for so many women and men in our community, and she unfortunately passed away. And the kind of dignity and elegance that she 
lived her life, and also Sinclair's father of blessed memory, who was a very, very learned uh, personality as well, was married for close to 65 years, and um, uh, was a musmach, was ordained by Rabbi Salavechik himself. These were extraordinary people in our community, true, true leaders and role models. And the way that their loved ones, um, their children, their their um, their spouses, the, the, the way that they're dealing with um, these losses is just unbelievable. I, I, I am just so impressed. And our heart goes out to those individuals. And what they all want and what they're saying to me and to others for whom they're speaking at these shiva calls is that we live that kind of balanced life and that we devote ourselves to Torah and to mitzvot, but understanding that the Torah and the mitzvot are there for us to be connected with Hashem in the physical world in a healthy, balanced kind of way. And it seems that Nadav and Avihu were going beyond that. And that is a model and a lesson. A, the way Aaron, the father, dealt with the passing of his beloved sons and how we can learn from their passing to live a more grounded and spiritual life. A spiritual life that's not trying to negate the physical world, spiritual life that is trying to elevate the, the physical world with our feet planted on the ground and our minds and our hearts and our souls pointed towards the heavens to remain connected spiritually but remained it grounded physically. And I bless each and every one of you to have a very beautiful Shabbos. We're going to have um, Kabbalat Shabbat this afternoon at 6.15, uh, bringing in the Shabbos. Uh, we'll light the Shabbos candles then. And then tomorrow night, a Havdalah, Saturday night at 8.30. invite you to come back and join us for a beautiful Havdalah to take out the Shabbos. May it be a peaceful and beautiful Shabbos. I'm sorry that I didn't uh, invite much uh, interaction from my many students today. A lot of people came on here, I see. Thank you all for joining. But um, if anybody has any questions or comments, you know where to reach me, Mark Wilds at Gmail. Uh, you can face, uh, time me, uh, email me and text me, whatever, however you want to get in touch with me. Have a beautiful Shabbos to you and to your families. All the best. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.